Hey listeners, welcome back to Shades of Crime. Cold cases always seem to be the most baffling. There is usually minimal information, and what little information there is on the cases is often withheld from the public to preserve its integrity for the case investigation. It isn't that often that something comes along that shows great potential at closing not one, but eight cold cases, but with the arrest of Russell Williams, investigators in Manitoba, Ontario, and Nova Scotia have all been forced to consider the possibility that he could be tied to unsolved murders in those provinces. But even with the knowledge of Williams' movement, good solid evidence is necessary to definitively link him to any cold cases. And as I mentioned above, cold cases often lack such evidence, and what is important to collect from a crime scene now isn't the same as what it was decades ago. That's why, even though the murders of Andrea King, Shelley Connors, and Kathleen McViker have been reopened with Williams as a potential suspect, there has been no concrete links between him and these murders. When I tell you about the murders of these three women, I will be sure to tell you about all potential suspects. It is easy to say that because Williams was in the province at the time of the murders, that he is the man responsible. But it is never that cut and dry. So I will provide you with all of the information available to me and let you decide who you think could be responsible for the gruesome murders of these three young women. Get ready, because things are about to get shady. Andrea King was born in New Westminster, British Columbia back in 1973. Andrea grew up in BC and attended all of her schooling there. Once Andrea had finished her final year of high school in 1991, she began her attempts to enter the workforce. Andrea tried and tried, but she just couldn't find somewhere she felt comfortable working. At this point in her life, Andrea also longed to explore and expand her horizons beyond New Westminster and the town and people she had seen every day of her life for the past 18 years. Since her job hunt wasn't going so well, Andrea came up with a new idea. She decided that she would go elsewhere to work and also make an adventure of it. She finally was going to take action to satiate her wanderlust. In December of 1991, Andrea announced to her family that she intended to move to Nova Scotia to find a job and start a new chapter of her life. The plans were arranged and Andrea booked her flight. She was extremely excited and she was truly ready to adventure. She didn't even know the address of where she would be staying while she was there, but she just felt that everything was going to be okay. See, Atlantic Canada has a stereotype of being a safe and friendly area. The people there are thought to be welcoming, and the belief is that you can just arrive there and if you knocked on someone's door, they would take you in. Basically, other Canadians view Atlantic Canada how the world views Canada. 
So Andrea's family felt comfortable with letting their daughter travel to this place, and they just knew that she would be welcomed in as soon as she arrived. On January 1st of 1992, Andrea hopped on her plane to Nova Scotia, and on that same day, she arrived at the Halifax Stanfield International Airport. Once she had arrived, she called her sister. While on the phone, she told her sister that she had arrived safely and that she was heading out to the hostel she planned to stay at for the night, and this hostel was in Halifax. Andrea had forgotten a few things in BC, so she said that she would provide her family with the mailing address of where she would be living within the next few days. She then hung up and headed out on her way to the hostel. Andrea's family eagerly awaited the call from Andrea giving an update on where she was and how her first few days in Halifax were. But that call never came. After a couple of days had passed, Andrea's family stopped feeling like their daughter may have just been busy and unable to call them, and they grew concerned. Her family contacted Halifax police to report their daughter missing. They also contacted the new Westminster police. The search ensued in both Nova Scotia and British Columbia, in hopes to turn up some clue as to where Andrea had gone. The searches started at the Halifax airport. This was the last known location for Andrea to have contacted someone, and it seemed like the best spot to trace her movements. But when investigators questioned workers at the airport and potential people who may have been there on January 1st, no one had a single clue where she could have gone. The investigators didn't even know how she intended to get to her hostel, or what hostel she was staying at. The Halifax airport is about a 20-minute drive from downtown Halifax, which would amount to a fairly large taxi fare, one that seems unlikely that she could afford under her circumstances. This meant that the two most likely scenarios were that someone had offered her a drive from the airport, or she had taken the bus. Even with these ideas, there was no new information coming from the investigation, and it just hit dead end after dead end. But then, the police received a phone call on December 22nd of 1992 that could be vital to the case. On December 22nd, Halifax police received a phone call from a man named Charlie Craig in Sackville, Nova Scotia. He had been out hunting in the Sackville area when he came across a badly decomposed body. When investigators arrived, the body was identified to be that of Andrea King. Based on the state of decomposition, it was believed that she had died the day that she arrived in Nova Scotia almost a year earlier. Unfortunately, her state of decomposition made identifying a cause of death difficult. Andrea's body had been found 200 meters from the end of the Dead End Glendale Drive, a road located in the Sackville Business Park. It is believed that Andrea was murdered at the spot that her remains were found. Sackville Business Park is about 20 minutes from the Halifax airport, but it is not on the way to Halifax. It is actually about a 15 to 20 minute drive from downtown Halifax. So it seems likely that Andrea was brought to this location instead of to Halifax, and she really wouldn't have known the difference at the time. There really wouldn't be a reason for her to go to Sackville after arriving in Halifax, as Halifax really has more to it than Sackville. Andrea wasn't familiar with the area, so she likely wouldn't have put up a fuss about her driver traveling in the wrong direction. 
Even though road signs say what direction to go, there are always shortcuts that signs just don't show. This leads me to believe that she likely hadn't taken public transportation and that she probably had accepted a ride from someone. But now the question is, who had given Andrea that drive that led to her death? Of course, the fact that Russell Williams was in Nova Scotia at the time of Andrea's murder makes him a potential suspect. He did own a car, and he could have picked her up from the airport, but lots of people have cars. That's not really enough to link him to this crime. Without knowledge of Andrea's cause of death, it would be hard to say if her murder fit William's MO, and without much usable DNA from the scene, there really isn't much to connect him to the crime, other than the fact that he was in the province, which is enough to reevaluate the crime, but certainly not enough to say that he is the killer. Especially when there's another man who may look even better as a potential culprit. A man named Andrew Paul Johnson was known to be an active sex offender in the 90s in Halifax. If this name sounds familiar to you, it could be because he was considered to be the prime suspect in the disappearance of Kimberly McAndrew, and he had even been found in possession of her items, and had written poetry about her rape and murder. At one point, he was arrested for attempting to abduct two 12-year-old girls, and when this happened, he also had a mentally challenged 20-year-old woman held hostage in his car. He was arrested and considered a high-risk sex offender. While his potential connections to the Kimberly McAndrews case and the Stephen Michael Hall cases are known, he is also believed to have a link to Andrea. When Johnson was arrested, a compact belonging to Andrea was found in his possession. Following his arrest, police searched his car and found a few interesting items. In his car, he had handcuffs, porn, a realistic mask of an Asian man with a long ponytail, a meat cleaver, lube, packing tape, and numerous empty beer cans. So in his car, Johnson had all of the tools necessary to abduct and murder a woman, and he was also caught abducting a woman. He was looking like a very convincing suspect. Unfortunately, conclusive links between Johnson and Andrea's death haven't been made, meaning that her case is still unsolved to this day. As easy as it is to say that one man is responsible for all cold case murders in the area that he has traveled, we always need to be cautious and understand the potential for other suspects, because I don't believe that Williams is the man responsible for this murder. I don't know that, but I don't see enough evidence to say that he did it. Until further information is released, or Andrea's case is closed, I don't find there to be sufficient evidence incriminating Williams in this specific case. Next, I'm going to tell you about the Shelley Connors case. Shelley Denise Connors was born and raised in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where she lived with her brother and mother in a Spryfield apartment. In 1993, 17-year-old Shelley was attending high school at St. Patrick's High in Spryfield. At this time, she had a good group of friends and also enjoyed hanging out with her brother, Corey. One of their favorite hangouts was around the Lions Club rink at 25 Drysdale Road in Halifax. This rink was only a very short walk from their home. On Saturday, May 29th of 1993, Shelley was going about her normal Saturday routine. During the afternoon, Shelley's mom was at work, leaving her and her brother home alone. 
That afternoon, the apartment received a phone call, which Corey picked up. When he said hello, the person on the other end asked for Shelly. Corey asked who it was that was calling, and the guy answered saying that his name was Chad. The caller then asked to speak with Shelly again, so Corey went to get his sister. He handed her the phone and left the room. Twenty minutes after he handed Shelly the phone, he saw her leaving their apartment. He didn't end up asking any questions because he assumed she was going to hang out with the caller at the rink. Right before Shelly left the apartment, she had poured herself a glass of pop. She also left her pack of cigarettes behind, and this led Corey to believe that she only planned on being gone for a few minutes. But those few minutes quickly turned into hours. And then, when Shelly's mother came home, Corey reported what had happened, stating that he was concerned. The next day, when they hadn't heard anything from Shelly, they reported her missing to the Halifax police. At first, searches weren't carried out because of torrential downpours going on at the time, but when June 1st came around and the rain stopped, and no one had heard anything from her, things started to feel a bit more real. Police ended up launching a search party for Shelly using dogs to locate her. Seven minutes into the search, the dogs had a hit. The police followed the dogs and they led the police to an area around the rink. It was there that they found a pile of sticks barely covering the body of Shelly Connors. When she was found, Shelly was missing her boots and coat. There is no other information on what the scene looked like other than that it was clearly a homicide. The two days prior to Shelly being located, it was apparently constant downpours beyond the level anyone had seen in a long time. Due to this weather, most of the evidence that could have been found at the scene had been washed away. Since Shelly was a minor at the time of her murder, certain details of her murder can't be released to the public, so we don't know if she had been sexually assaulted or the nature of her murder. After they located Shelly's body, investigations into her murder quickly followed. First, the family was questioned. Her brother and mother gave all of the information they had and took polygraphs. The two were quickly ruled out. Next, attention turned to Shelly's friends. Each were questioned and polygraphed, and one after another, they were ruled out. But there was one person who declined the polygraph, a man who had previously lived next door to Shelly. This man was actually brought to the attention of authorities by her brother, Corey. When the man lived next to them, Corey and Shelly had become good friends with him. They would often go over and hang out with him, either in his basement or sometimes they would go to their hangout spot at the rink, the area which Shelly's body was located. Normally, rejecting a polygraph is actually advisable for basically anyone, but when every single other person who could have been involved was polygraphed and answered questions without a struggle, it looked pretty bad on this man. When police heard about these hangouts, they began looking at this guy more seriously. They requested questioning a few more times, but he declined. Not only was he refusing to provide any information, but he also apparently came after Shelley's brother and her friends when he found out that they had mentioned him to police. Following this, he was arrested and taken into police custody for formal questioning. This arrest looked promising. Maybe the man who murdered Shelley was actually going to get caught. But, without any further word, he was released from custody and no follow-up questions or interviews have been carried out with this man. 
One more potential suspect came from Shelley's sister, Martha, who had been hearing some rumors that truly disturbed her. Someone that Martha knew had been telling people that he was the one responsible for Shelley's death. These reports made their way back to Martha, and she immediately went to authorities. Despite this, there has never been any further information on this man, and it looks like he was never even questioned or considered a suspect in the eyes of investigators. So what do we have that could possibly lead to the one responsible for Shelley's murder? Well, the phone call is one of the most important things. When Corey answered the phone, he said that the voice was not one that he recognized. While this could mean that someone modified their voice, this could also mean that the person wasn't someone familiar to him, and since he was close to Shelley, it seems likely that it would have been someone new in her life. Corey also said that when he was given the person's name, it sounded fake. Like the person had come up with it on the fly because they didn't want to give out their true identity. This is supported by the fact that no one by the name of Chad was tied to the case in any form, and there was no person that Shelley's family knew that went by the name Chad. Obviously, if I'm talking about Shelley's murder as one of the cases that could be linked to Russell Williams, we should look into what could possibly connect him with her death. We know that her case was re-examined when the word about Williams' murders got out. But this was the same as with any cold case in the areas he had traveled through. If somehow they had met somewhere recently, he could be the person that wasn't known to the rest of the family. He would have the means to get to her location, but how would he have been familiar with her hangout area unless she suggested they go there? It is a bit obscure for someone to randomly go to. While there is some potential that Williams could have done this, again, I don't see enough solid evidence to truly link him to the death of Shelley Connors. So, with the past two cases, I have to say that I am not convinced that Williams was responsible, but that certainly is not how I feel about the next case. Kathleen McViker was born in Glace Bay, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. She grew up and spent most of her childhood there. In 2001, 19-year-old Kathleen decided to move to Ontario for work. She had an aunt and uncle living in Ontario at CFB Trenton, the main military base in Canada. Kathleen worked at the Stream Call Centre in Belleville, Ontario, and stayed on the base with her aunt and uncle in the marriage quarters of the base. Kathleen would make trips between the base and her work frequently, and she had made a few friends in the area as well. She was busy and her life was almost non-stop. On June 13th of 2001, Kathleen was visiting a friend in the town of Trenton. After her visit, she left on foot to head back to the CFB Trenton marriage quarters. The next day, when Kathleen hadn't shown up at her aunt and uncle's place, they grew concerned. But she was a fairly independent woman. Her being away may have just been related to her staying with friends or something. On June 15th, the people hired to mow the lawns for the base were out doing their job. One of the workers was mowing in the area of Middleton Park on the defenses area of CFB Trenton, where military housing is. While mowing, the worker came across a dead woman on the fringe of a sparsely wooded area at the edge of the lawn. This area was next to a road that children used to take the bus to go to school off base. The worker called authorities who came to investigate the situation. The woman was found to be Kathleen McViker. 
When her body was found, Kathleen had been raped and then stabbed multiple times, which eventually led to her death. Somewhere between Trenton and the Trenton military base, Kathleen had been picked up by someone and that was the person responsible for her murder. Investigations into Kathleen's murder were diligent from the side of Ontario Provincial Police, but fell short when it came to the military. Since her murder occurred on military grounds, the investigations required participation from the military. While the OPP were looking into as many leads as they could, the military was unwilling to participate or aid in the efforts of closing the murder of Kathleen. Kathleen's mother, Colleen, who still lived in Glace Bay, said that the closed mouths of the military seemed highly suspicious to her, almost as though they were defending members of the military. During this time, Williams was the head of CFB Trenton and was also earning himself the title of the Tweed Creeper. His late-night excursions into the homes of women and girls were in full swing, and he was also stealing panties at this time. So when the crimes committed by Williams came forward to the public, Kathleen's family's first thought was that he was the man responsible for Kathleen's murder. The sexual assault and the stabbing fit the M.O. of Williams, and the murder on a military base puts him in the same location as where she was found murdered. The Ontario police did say that they considered him a potential suspect in Kathleen's death, but they also said that they didn't intend on trying him for anything related to this case anytime soon. This was for the reason that I have said before. Their main focus was on closing the crimes he was already on trial for. What's different about Kathleen's case from the other two I have told you about today is that there hasn't been any potential suspect's name, there hasn't been anyone who looked good in terms of the person who attacked her, there was no alternate option that looked better than Williams. The murder of Kathleen hasn't been connected to Williams officially, but as far as Kathleen's mother is concerned, she knows who killed her daughter, and now all she needs is confirmation through conviction. While that would provide closure, there seems to be little prospect of it happening anytime soon. Unfortunately, for now, the murders of the five women I have talked about in this investigation into the potential victims of Russell Williams remain unsolved and waiting for the final bit of evidence to determine whether Williams could be linked to any of them. So what do you think? Is Williams responsible for some of the crimes, all of them, or none of them? Is he truly only responsible for the murders of Marie-France Camot and Jessica Lloyd, or is there more to the crimes of this once-esteemed military man? That's all I have for you. That's all I have for you for the cold cases potentially linked to Russell Williams. So thank you for listening, and I will see you next week. Thank you for listening to Shades of Crime. Our theme music is by Shali Musso. This episode was written and researched by me. The sources for this episode and all of our other episodes can be found on our blog, www.shadesofcrime.ca. Shades of Crime can be found on almost any platform where you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram at Shades of Crime Podcast. If you like what you hear, could you please rate and review Shades of Crime on Apple Podcasts? It's a fantastic way to get the word out about this show. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or if you would like to request a case, email us at shadesofcrime at gmail.com. That's all for this week, and I'll see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.